Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started this morning. Father, we do just commit today to you that there's just a lot of crazy stuff going on. Just my weekend, and realizing that life is not predictable. It's not always one foot in front of the other. We don't always know what's coming. We don't always understand what's going on. Uh, we don't always like what's going on. But we come here this morning, and one of the things that we desire to do is to connect and remember that you're sovereign, that this story that's unfolding um, has somebody at the helm. It has intentionality behind it, that you are good, you are loving, you do see what goes on, and that we can rely on you, we can trust you. We're not alone. And so, Father, just make us aware of your presence, and even more than that, make us aware of your love as a father for his children. And we commit this morning to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we do a lot of talking about what things in life. You know, it's kind of where we, we land a lot of times. Go, go do the dishes is a what thing. And if you ever had your parents tell you to do that growing up, what's the immediate question that follows? Why? <laughs> um, there's a lot of things we're supposed to do or told to do or actions that we see, things we feel compelled or even guilty to do. There's a lot of what stuff in this life and the question behind it usually is why. And there's a lot of why emotions. And what we're going to do this morning that's pretty huge and, and it was hard for me all week long praying about this and feeling like I don't know how to get us as a congregation, God, to, to see this is as big as it is. I don't know how to rip us out of where we're at and say we're talking about the ultimate why question. Stop and, and get your mind to wrap around that because everything will be different if we can just grasp this. It's, it's just an incredibly difficult concept because there's whys about specific what's and then there's an ultimate why as to all of it. Why do we exist? Why are we here? What's the purpose in my life? And we get that this morning because we just finished talking about a passage in chapter 2 of 1 Peter where it says this, it says, You like living stones, in verse 5, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And it begins to tease out an idea here that your life has a purpose and a design behind it, one that's commensurate with the whole global picture of this world. It takes everything in your life, your little desires, the things you've got going today, the disappointments of yesterday, the hopes and aspirations of tomorrow, and it wraps all of those little sticks into a bundle and says your life, why you are here, is for this purpose and it's outward and it's directional and it's aimed at the glory of God. And we, we get a glimpse of it there and then when we drop down further, it says this in the conclusion of kind of that whole chapter or, or section in verse 11 it says this dear friends I urge you and then we get that language that we talked about several weeks ago as aliens and strangers in this world you're radically different 
You don't belong here. Your, your orientation, just where you're focused, your direction is not the same as the people who are native to this land. You, you speak a different language. You have a different mindset. And so as people who are foreigners, people who are strange, people who don't fit in, ad, abstain. Abstain. Stay back from, remove yourself from, separate yourself from, Sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. That. Okay, so here we go again. Here, what's the what? The what is be, be a goody two-shoes. Like, you know, I mean, just, just remove yourself and just be different. Just not even halfway, just all the way. Remove yourselves and live such a good life. That's the what. Go do the dishes. And the question is, somebody pinched their neighbor. Why? You do this that. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Glorify God on the day he visits us. Now it's interesting, we we have this concept now a little bit of, of glorifying God and that doesn't mean much to us because we don't really see actions in all of life as kind of fitting together. And Aristotle, way back when, the, the philosopher in, in ancient Greece, pulled all of, of our means and our ends into a hierarchy. And it's been really helpful for theologians for 2,000 years. And Aristotle said there's ends and then there's an ultimate end. So if you think about going to the grocery store, that's a goal, right? It's an end. But it has another goal behind it. I'm going to the grocery store. Why am I going to the grocery store? Because I'm hungry. Okay? So I'm going to the grocery store because I'm hungry. Well, why am I hungry? Well, I have an appetite. What's my desire? Well, to fulfill my appetite. What's my desire in fulfilling my appetite? I want to live and I want to be healthy and I want to sustain myself. Well, why do I want to live and be healthy and sustain myself? There's another end behind that. Because I like my life. And I want it to continue. And it, it just keeps going and then it reaches an ultimate end. The final end. The final purpose. And what we're getting at here is the ultimate end. The, the final purpose for all these other things that are going on in your life, when it all boils down to that one thing that makes everything else turn, the Bible tells us it's the glory of God. It's this little phrase that's a kind of a tag on the end of so many scriptures that it becomes cliche or it becomes kind of the thing we tune out. It's, it's like saying amen at the end of a prayer. When was the last time we thought about what that means or why we do it? It's just a tag, and the reason it's at the end of every prayer is because that one little tag is more important than any individual prayer. So we can pray a million different prayers, ask a million different requests, and you know what's more important than our requests? is that little tag at the end that says, you know what, God, so let it be. I'm not just wishful thinking here, I'm trusting you that you can let this happen. And so I'm putting this amen at the end, it's, God, let it be true. And that little act of faith and recognizing that it's not just my words, but it's the person who I'm praying to, and that that person is sovereign, that's more important, really, than my little requests. But it becomes so familiar. 
that we put all of our energy and thought processes into our little requests and we forget that really the most important thing here is, oh man, God, let it be so. God, you're big enough. God, you can do it. God, I trust you. And this little tag to the glory of God is like that. It is the ultimate end of our existence. It's why we exist, and yet it becomes the thing that we don't even see. I've got some scriptures to help us understand what's going on here in terms of the glory of God. I mean, if we really ask the question, why do we exist, Romans, for from him and through him and then back to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Colossians. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were not only created by him, but also for him. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation, Jesus Christ, perfect through suffering. Proverbs, the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. And Isaiah, listen to this, this is amazing in chapter 43 of Isaiah. Even our salvation isn't ultimately for us. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Why are we here? Why did God create us like any artist that would create something? He is pleased and he is passionate and he is desirous of creating this thing that he's going to be excited about and that is going to please him. He does it for his own sake. Why do we exist? We exist for the glory of God. And there's two other verses here. God does all of this for his own sake. And in response to that, where do we fit in? Everything we do, whatever we choose to do, the motivation should be that it's all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 and listen to this, John 14, 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, says Jesus to his disciples. I'm going to answer your prayers. Why? So that the Son may bring glory to the Father. When you pray to me, I'm going to see that it's answered. Why? Because I want to glorify God. And when we don't understand this whole idea of God created the world for his own glory, so now we stand over here and what we do ultimately points back and aims at the glory of God, we don't understand anything about life. So our prayers reflect that. I heard a great sermon by, by someone recently that I respect and he did a wonderful job of really explaining this. We, we pray for our health. God, make me healthy. But there's no so that on the end of it. So that I will have the energy to go and bring you glory, to minister and to serve and to love. God, restore this relationship that's broken. But we don't have a so that on there. So that people would see that we really can forgive each other and have grace and have unity. And in seeing that, they would love you, God. And see you is just big and bigger than the petty things of this life. God, help me get off of a drug addiction. 
Why? So that I would know true happiness. I mean, I was there once. And it was amazing to me that I was pursuing happiness when the whole time I was rejecting the God that gives us joy when we, when we choose to trust and follow him. God, get me off this drug, drug, drug addiction. Why? So that I would know the joy that comes from you and the, and the pleasure in my life would bring you glory and would be a testimony that you are more satisfying than the stupid little things I can do to manipulate my own pleasures. God, kick this drug addiction. Help me do it. Why? So that I can dedicate my life to you so that I can actually go out and serve you instead of wasting my time and my energy, my brain cells. If I forget your name, you know why. Um, our prayer life shows when we don't understand why we exist. It's like little arrows. We, we, we see things, the, the grocery store, and we don't, we don't take at all the way to the ultimate end, and, and we only see the, the immediate little desires and needs, and so we shoot little arrows at the things we want, even if those things seem to be good. And we've got a target, and we aim at that target. We've got a target, we aim at that target. God, help me with this. Help this relationship. I need more energy. Um, help me with my studies. Help me with this difficult person that's gossiping about me. And we shoot at these little things, but we never ask the question, when you bundle all those sticks together, what is the, the arrow that is my life? What is that aimed at? All that I am, all that I have, all of it, the things that go by my name, Ken Weitzma, if you were to sum up my life, what is that arrow aimed at? What is it pointed at? It's the ultimate question. And it should be pointed at the glory of God. My prayers should have a so that on the end of them. And what we aim at matters. Last night, uh, I was supposed to officiate a wedding. And I learned this lesson that what we aim at really matters. I aimed at being there at 6.45. Problem was the wedding started at 6. So I brought my daughter because I thought I was being a good dad, you know. So Mary Joy's in the car with me. I'm taking her to this wedding, and, and I politely cut her off. Hey, Mary Joy, Daddy will talk to you in just a second. He's going to check his voicemail. <laughs> and I got one message at 5.30, evidently, one at 5.45, one at 6. And as I'm listening to the third one, I'm looking at the clock in the car, and it says 6.30. And, and I know that it's too late. Like, there's no covering this up. I mean, I can't just drive faster and make it go away. I aimed at the wrong thing. I aimed at the wrong thing. And that arrow that is your life has to be aimed at the right thing. And if we aim at the wrong thing, there's going to come a point in time when we're going to say, you know what? I, I can't go back. I can't erase. I can't get that time back with my kids or with my friends or with my schooling or with my career choices. I never really thought about the ultimate purpose of my life and the decisions that I've made as I've gone through weren't made with how can I best glorify God and now I'm in a position that I wish I wasn't in. And it matters what we aim at. It matters. I was going to defend God and say he's not selfish in making this for his own glory, and I decided I'm not going to go that route. Let's go back into First Peter. 
And I want to pick up on one verse here, and then I want to take this verse all the way through the last 2,000 years of history, actually. So if you love history, you're going to dig this. If you don't, this is, this is a cool chance to just take a nap. I'll wake you up when we're done with the history part. So, <laughs> All right. Um, verse 11 again. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Here's the amazing thing about the they in this, this little passage of First Peter. The root word is ethnos. The they is the nations. Peter's writing to a scattered people group all over the place. To, to church after church after church, congregation after congregation. When we read this, it's not just this small little Antioch thing. It's not a small little Ben thing. Hey, you know, you guys, you really ought to live a good life, and maybe the other people in Ben will see. This is, Peter's going huge with this. And he's saying all of you, in all the congregations, in all the cities, so that all the peoples of the world would see and know that a sovereign God had the right plan. He's going huge with this. And we've got to get our minds wrapped around this, that we all exist for the glory of God. Not only my one little life with my one little arrow, but the whole plan is coming back to that. Now he's talking to people that have the Old Testament background. A lot of the people he's writing to are people who have grown up in a Jewish culture and they understand this whole idea of the glory of God. They understand it so well that in their minds it's like if we don't do this, that's when God carts us up and sends us into exile. In fact, in their minds, the whole Roman occupation in Palestine in that period of time was because they didn't get it, that it was about the glory of God. And they went their own way, and so God said, you want your own way? I'll show you where your own way gets you. And not only does sin get us into a mess in our own lives, sin corporately in a whole nation in their mindset gets them into a mess. And Peter's talking to people that get it. We exist for the glory of God, and when we live that way, there's blessing and there's joy and it's rich. And when we don't, there's dire consequences. Their culture was seeped in this. And for almost 2,000 years, the people of the book, Christians, the covenant people, have understood that the glory of God is what it's all about. So a quick survey of this. Um, we'll start with Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s picks up on this idea of Aristotle and he even, as a philosopher, brings it in. And this is what Aquinas says. It is clear that all things are directed to one good as their last end. That which is the supreme good is supremely the end of all. Now there is but one supreme good, namely God. Therefore, all things are directed to the highest good, namely God as their end. The reformers came along and, and put the glory of God back at the center of everything. Everything revolves around the glory of God. They really would articulate that little tag at the end that it was often forgotten. In the Westminster Confession in 1646, which was supposed to bridge Scotland and England during a brief time 
in England's history and civil war and all this stuff, the Westminster Confession of Faith began the catechism. What was going to train young people, okay, with this question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, that catechism gets brought over to the United States by the Presbyterians. And the Baptists soon reconfigure it, and the, the Congregationalists soon reconfigure it, and you have generation after generation of children being raised up and educated, knowing the answer to this question, what is the chief end of man? Why do you exist? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So much so that historian Andrew Delbanco and we're going to kind of use his format for the next stage of kind of tracing out America's history. He says America's gone through three stages. And the first stage was one where we saw our allegiance as being to God. Collectively as a nation, even people that didn't believe in God sometimes, according to Del Banco, or that had a real minimalist understanding of that, they st still, as Americans, collectively saw that as being the chief end. We all kind of know that we're together underneath God. You see it on our, our money and things like that. But it's not where they were at in terms of Christians. I think we get the, you know, sidetracked on that. We're the founding fathers, Christians, whatever. They still collectively saw the, the purpose as being outside of themselves and underneath this whole idea of the glory of God. Jonathan Edwards, one of the premier American theologians, lives in this time period. And uh, I think I've got some of his resolutions. He wrote out 70 resolutions that he would read every week. But listen to the language. In the heading of his resolutions, he says this, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. It's not about me. Number one, resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. So when I'm going to put on clothes in the morning, which clothes bring God the most glory? When I have a decision to make, which one's going to bring God the most glory? His resolution number four, never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. And I could show you with resolution after resolution that the tagline here, the understanding that there's an electrical circuit that if it doesn't get pointed back to the source of the energy, the circuit's not closed and the light bulb doesn't light. Does that make sense? I mean, basic electronics or something, right? And he understood that it all points back, just like Johann Sebastian Bach around the same time period, at the end of his compositions would write, SDG, Sole Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. They understood that all of this that we do has to be pointed back for it to really connect and us to be in that loop of God working through us to his glory. Jonathan Edwards got this to such a high degree that he wrote a whole book called The End for Which God Created the World. A whole philosophical book arguing about everything exists for the glory of God. On the back of your notes page in the, in the bulletin, there's a reference book called um, God's Passion for His Glory by John Piper. And they reprint Jonathan Edwards' whole book inside that book. So if you ever want to like read for a month or two straight about why everything exists for God's glory, 
Jonathan Edwards could talk more about that than anyone you know. So the early stages of America, it pointed outward. It was a collective consciousness. The preachers got it. Politicians kind of got it. And it was all about um, the glory of God. It was external to us. Del Banco says the, the next category came about the time of the Civil War. In 1859, Darwin writes Origin of the Species. And that really touched off a change that, that goes through American higher academy and, and American culture. And it shifts us away from collectively being about the glory of God to something else. And he says we had to find something external to ourselves to fixate on. And we, we, we made it the nation. That the United States would be what we fixate on. That this country and the glory of this country. And so in the 1900s, we really begin this imperialistic track as America. And we all rally around that. And it's this national consciousness and pride. And it goes all the way up much further. But I want to just give you some brief writings in that time period as you see this shift. First one is from Henry David Thoreau. Let me just start reading it. This is out of Walden. And we're all going to be familiar with these words, but listen to how he ends it. This is, this is great stuff right here, okay? It's not, because he's wrong, but it's great stuff, okay? Here's what you're familiar with. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and to see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. To live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life. To cut a broad swath and shave close. To drive life into a corner and to reduce it to its lowest terms. And... If it proved to be mean, why then to get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world? Or if it were sublime, to know it by experience and to be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion. Now listen to this. I think we've got it on the board for you. For most men, it appears to me, are in a strange uncertainty about it whether it is of the devil or of God, and have somewhat hastily concluded that it is the chief end of man here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So you begin to see this questioning of, really, are we supposed to live to the glory of God? Have we too hastily concluded that? Is that really where the arrow is supposed to aim? And maybe we should just step back and, and take some time to explore and to figure it out. And it's this amazing kind of emancipation language. I'm free unto myself. And, and I love that. It's liberating. And we feed off that. But this is kind of where the literature begins to take us, questioning the basic assumptions that his generation have been grown up and been taught. Does that make sense? Here's another quote from Nietzsche. The German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, in, in about the same um, period, says this. He says, Paul thought up the idea, and Calvin rethought it, that for innumerable people, damnation has been decreed for, from eternity, and that this beautiful world plan was instituted to reveal the glory of God. Heaven and hell and humanity are thus supposed to exist to satisfy the vanity of God. 
What cruel and insatiable vanity must have flared in the soul of the man who thought this up first or second. Paul has remained Saul after all, the persecutor of God. Now Nietzsche was the first one to kind of, from a philosophical point of view, declare the death of God. That it was an idea of man that has ceased to exist. And what does he go after? He goes after this idea of the glory of God and brings it into question. He says, maybe we don't exist to that. And he comes up with the ubermensch or superman, which is supposed to transcend in an individual sense, transcend ourselves. And where does it go to? It goes to German nationalism to the point where in World War I, every foot soldier had in his knapsack, German foot soldier had in his knapsack, a copy of Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And you see nationalism grow out of this. A questioning of God, but we have to come together around some other common purpose. What's that going to be? That's going to be the state. In America, this takes us up to about um, the Vietnam War, is what Del Banco would say, where we get disillusioned with the state or with the nation, and then we have to go looking for something else. Right around that time, we take it even further and begin to question the point of existence altogether. Here's a quote from... Jack Kuryak, and his, you know, let's read the whole paragraph, but this is what he says in his book, uh, On the Road. It says, so in America, when the sun goes down and I sit on the old broken down river pier watching the long, long skies over New Jersey, and sense all that raw land that rolls in one unbelievable huge bulge over the west coast, and all that road going, and all the people dreaming and the immensity of it, and, and in Iowa... I know by now the children must be crying in the land where they let the children cry. And tonight the stars will be out. And don't you know that God is Pooh Bear? The evening star must be drooping and shedding her sparkling dims on the prairie, which is just before the coming of complete night that blesses the earth, darkens all rivers, cups the peaks and enfolds the final shore in. And nobody, nobody knows what's going to happen to anybody Beside the, besides the forlorn rags of growing old. In another one of Kuriak's books, he has a friend that jumps off a roof, commits suicide, and he's lamenting this, and he says, she didn't get it. If only she had have known that she is God, then she wouldn't have done that absurd act that was out of her own guilt. And Del Banco says, we started with God, we moved to the nation, and lastly, and where we're at today, he says, we've become all about the self. And he says, this thing was external to us and it brought us together under one purpose. This thing even was external to us and it still brought us together under one purpose. This thing is radically internal and individualistic and it brings us together not at all. Because now everybody is ultimately after and committed. Their arrow is pointing to one and one thing only and that's self-actualization and becoming who I am. It's huge. G.K. Chesterton joked with America a long time ago, but I think it's even more prophetic now than it was in his day. And, and he took our national emblem, the eagle, and he says, the eagle has no liberty. It has only loneliness. And we are so committed to ourselves that we can't understand why we're lonely. We can't understand why 
why subordinates don't obey their bosses at work anymore and why people won't do common decent things anymore. And I remember when I was at Clemson, I had a, an RD come to me and I was an RA and he was so mad that the other RAs wouldn't follow him or listen to him. And this guy was an atheist and I said, well, why would you expect them to? It's not in their self-interest. And just because it's in your self-interest, why would they be committed to that? And it really blew him away, and it was the first time he'd ever begun to question the philosophical assumptions of the way he saw the world. And he wanted virtue, but he believed a system that wouldn't produce virtue. C.S. Lewis wrote about this, and he says, We remove the organ and demand the function. We remove what would give rise to virtue because we have to submit to God. We've removed that, but we still want the virtuous society that would come from it. And he goes on and he has this wonderful phrase and he says, we castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. We rip out the organ and demand the function and that's pretty harsh language, but guess what? We live in this society where we are so detached from being under anything that we just shoot little arrows at little things. And we don't know why we exist. And we can't factor that into any of our decisions. And so we're all over the map. And we're confused and we're lost and we're depressed. And we're doing things. We wake up, we wake up sometimes and we wonder, why am I doing that? Why did I get into this? Why did I choose that? That's not me. It doesn't seem to make sense. Something just doesn't sit right. But I almost don't have a reason not to. I don't know who I am or where I'm going or why I exist. Why are we talking about all this? We used the, the Bonhoeffer quote a couple weeks ago that if the train is going the wrong direction, it doesn't matter how fast you run in the opposite direction down the middle aisle. And I've heard the story talk about guys that are lost, you know, and guys are lost and we're driving and someone says, hey, you're lost, you're going the wrong way. Hey, shut up, I'm making great time. You know, I mean, I'm that kind of a guy. Like, look how fast I'm going. Don't bother me with details. But what you're aiming at matters. And we're so put into this culture in America now where it's radically about ourselves that we don't realize how far we've come from really understanding why we exist. And so original sin, Adam and Eve, was about a decision to not subordinate themselves to God and to choose themselves over God. It was about a decision. We now live in a climate where the whole climate is oriented towards that. It's not about a decision about whether I should do something that's not subordinate to God. It's I'm choosing to make my whole life in all that I am, in all that I do, radically about self rather than God. And we're so steeped in it that we begin to pray that way and we never get the so that and we never get the amen and we never realize that we're not at the center. The word doxa here for glory is an interesting one of these, you know, sometimes Greek words are like, well, that, what does that matter, you know? This one actually has an interesting story behind it because when the, the, the Jewish rabbis, back when the world kind of became Hellenized, a hundred years, a couple hundred years before Jesus Christ, they took the Hebrew scriptures and put it into Greek. And when they hit this word for glory in Hebrew, they used the word doxa, the Greek word, and it, it actually changed the whole meaning of this Greek word. It used to mean high opinion. And then they, they brought in this word glory. And the word they were translating in Hebrew meant like weight. Weight or gravity, as in like 
Fort Knox in gold. Glory has this heaviness about it. Riches and fame and honor like sits there and it's heavy and, and it pulls you that way. Does that make sense? This is the Hebrew word, and they use the word doxa to try and carry that over. And I think we don't understand this glorify God concept because it's like saying the Pledge of Allegiance to America. And I, I don't know too many people that get too stoked about it. It's like, well, we do it, and it's a good thing to do. But it's so abstract. I'm, I'm not there. I, it doesn't grab me. As soon as I'm done, I don't walk out and think, now what's going to glorify America? You know? It's abstract. And I think we keep the the sense of the word, the original word doxa, where it was like high opinion. That's what that says, high opinion. But it's, it's out there, and it's the distance of God, and it's the, mis the mystery of God, and the abstractness of God, and yet we're supposed to glorify Him, but you know, I don't know how that hooks into life, and, and it's kind of there, and I'm here, and I don't know how it really attaches between the two of us. And I think there's a little bit of help here with just the word gravity and weight. One of the things that Einstein did is he did for science what I think this word can kind of do for, for us in the sense of glory. He came along and Newton's view of gravity was that you have this attraction at a distance. There's just this force somehow, like Star Wars. Remember the Death Star and the tractor beam? You know, It's just somehow this mysterious force that pulls objects to it. And, and Einstein called that spooky action at a distance. Because he's like, how can you pull something if there's no cause-effect like sequence between it? And he called it spooky action at a distance. And, and what he did is when, you know, his whole breakthrough was he wrapped space and time together into a fabric. So it's, we, we get the phrase fabric of time. You guys ever heard of that? Pinch your neighbor again. Okay, the fabric, space-time fabric. And, and what he did to define gravity is he says it's like a, if you picture a trampoline it's fabric and when something has density like the sun it's like a big bowling ball that that bends space-time fabric and so that means a marble if it's going around the bowling ball as long as it has sufficient speed will stay because space-time is bent and it holds this thing moving around it. Does that make sense? It's not some spooky thing that the, the sun does or the bowling ball does. It's because it bends the trampoline, the fabric, and it puts a dip there. Does that make sense? There's weight. There's gravity. And you can see the cause-effect sequence going that this affects that, affects this, and eventually what this is doing affects this marble, and then what that marble is doing affects other things, and it all has this cause effect in it. Well, we have to take the glory of God out of, like, the upper story stuff. Real weird, ethereal, high opinion, I don't know how to get my arms around it kind of a thing. And we've got to put the glory of God in the fabric of our lives. And we've got to give it enough weight so that we understand that God is big in this whole thing not just my life not this, not just this church not just this community not just our generation but the whole of existence was created to revolve around this it has so much weight that it is the supreme end the supreme goal of everything and that's there in our midst when we see the beauty of these mountains that's glory that's God's glory that's God's creation 
when we see the love of a parent for a child, that's a reflection of some of the beauty of God and the plan of God. And everything we see in day-to-day life, it shows some of the weight and some of the gravity of God's glory. And we begin to realize that affects my life. I naturally revolve around that. I cannot get out of that. And I either choose to submit to it and say my life revolves around God. It's about his glory. Or I use my free will to say, I'm going to pursue my own glory. And I'm going to set myself up different and there's chaos that's going to come from that. And it's going to be tension and it's going to be difficult because I'm going against the created order of things. Now why does all this matter? Why does it all matter? Go back to 1 Peter. Peter says you're supposed to live such good lives among the pagans. Your good life that you're supposed to live has a purpose. It's not just be good for good's sake. Be good so that you will bring glory to God. Church, when we come out of this radically self-centered view of church, you know know the kinds of things we get critical about? Programs. You know what? The programs, I don't like the programs. You know, because that's really what church is about. It's about giving me things, you know. I, I didn't like the coffee. Coffee, coffee was bad. Um, no, I don't like the music because it, it revolves around me. You know what we think of when we really believe, believe that we're a spiritual house being built up to the glory of God? That's what church is. The kinds of things we would get critical about then would be theology. Hey, whoa, 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 something's going wrong in that church. They're, they're worshiping a, a different God or they're not, they're not valuing truth. There's something really dangerous happening. But we would, we would talk about different things. Or, you know what, that church doesn't have a heart for the poor. That church doesn't love people. That church isn't glorifying God and what it does. And it changes everything about church. Why does this matter? It's like the tree I planted in my backyard that was leaning. And I thought, you know, I could tie a rope to it and put a stake in and try and pull it back into alignment. And then I finally realized that'd be stupid and what I need to do is get my shovel back out, dig it back up and replant it so that it points straight up. We need to dig ourselves out of where we're at in this culture and where we're pointing. We need to resituate ourselves and realize that the, the sticks that make up my life They should be pointed at a target and it matters what that target is and it's the glory of God. And if I'm not planted there, I'll never be able to answer the big why questions. Why do I exist? Why am I here? And I'll be left with a lot of weird why questions. Why is everything chaotic? Why is everything fractured? Why am I so depressed? Why am I so unhappy? Why are my relationships bad? Why is my health bad? When we don't get the ultimate end right, it creates chaos. Lastly, turn to Isaiah 42, because I think it's really important that we see this. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 packages it for us. And I think it's it's wild because the church today is beginning to try and aim aim at little targets, sometimes without knowing why we're aiming at the little targets and that they have to do with a bigger target called the glory of God. But we see things and we know just in our gut that something's wrong and so we try and start doing something about it. One of those things that this church is doing is is human rights. 
we, we value human rights. We value, we value trying to be involved in people of this world that need us to be their advocate. I think that sometimes we don't understand why we're doing it. But listen to Isaiah 42, and I'm just going to read this big chunk, and hopefully you'll get the flavor of it, beginning in verse 1. Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. This is Jesus, it's prophecy. And he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. And he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. And in his law the islands will put their hope. This is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. You're for all the nations. And to open eyes that are blind and to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. You go find those people that need help. You go be an advocate out there. You go find those that have no other hope and you be an agent of me in this world and transform it and you bring light into darkness. You go do that. That's the kind of thing that I'm doing for you. You do that. And he says this, I am the Lord that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and now new things I declare. And before they spring into being, I announce them to you. I'm not okay with how things used to be, and I'm going to set it right. I'm going to send my servant to establish justice, and then I'm going to build the church on him as the chief cornerstone. And that church, you people, us, we, all of it, the church, are going to carry on that work of restoring things in this world that God doesn't like. Why do we do human rights? Because it glorifies God. It's the tag at the end. So that God may be glorified. And he continues here and he says this, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them, let the desert and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Salah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. And it goes on. Why is that so amazing? We do human rights so that God may be glorified, so that we may be able to enjoy God's plan. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I love what John Piper says, and he says this, God is most satisfied in us God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Yeah, that's why you write things down, evidently. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. We've got to understand that happiness isn't by going and manipulating our pleasures. Our joy, our peace, 
the shalom, everything working together, us really feeling good is when we fit. We fit into that plan that God has for us. We get seated. We're not, we're not unseated. We're, we're not pulled out the puzzle piece that kind of sticks out jagged on the edges, but we're actually seated in the spot we're supposed to be. We found our place. So we do these things for the glory of God. And when we're trying to glorify God, it leads to our own happiness. It's this amazing thing that God has planned. Augustine says one last time, you have made us for yourself. God, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. God's glory and our happiness are so intertwined that we have to realize it's outside of ourselves and point that arrow where it needs to go. Targets are important targets are important. Let's pray. Father, we do we do want to pull ourselves up if we're trees that are pointed wrong we're not seated correctly. We want to be planted right. We want to glorify you. We want to know that there's a smile on your face when you see us. We want to hear words that we did it well, that we're good and faithful servants. We want to know the joy that comes from the harmony when we're, we're actually submissive to you and not fighting against you. Father God, I just pray that you would help an abstract concept like the glory of God to become a little bit easier so that we can begin to realize that everything we do, the way we live our lives, the way we do our jobs, the decisions we make, the things we choose not to do, that all these things can be done for your glory. So just help us as we seek to try feebly to glorify you in Christ's name.